Welcome to Crawford Media, the podcast that interviews interesting, influential and insightful news media people. The focus is on Australia and New Zealand, but the scope is global. My name is Hal Crawford. Today, the man who managed to get news and academia to breed in captivity. Andrew Jaspin founded The Conversation in 2011 and is now having another crack with the launch of something called 360 Info. What is it? How is it different from The Conversation? And will it work? This is Andrew Jaspin. I'm the director and editor-in-chief of a brand new service which launched this week called 360 Info. Previously, we operated under the name The Global Academy, and we're based here at Monash University. So, Andrew, thanks a lot for talking to me today. My, my provisional headline is Jasper's Odyssey to Reimagine Public Media. Now, is that too grandiose? Is that what you're doing? Uh, if I was to say those words, I'd probably be locked up and put away as being a fantasist or something. But let, let me tell you, since I started my sort of journey in journalism, I've always been interested with one bit of the media landscape. Because as you know, there are many different areas you can get into in, in terms of broadcast or print or magazines or whatever else. And within each of those are different niches as well. So I went initially into newspapers, but in newspapers, you've got what's called, what used to be called the quality end, the mid-market and the tabloids. And, you know, because my background at university was politics, modern history and philosophy. And I've kind of always been interested in the serious end of journalism. So I sort of gravitated towards working for the Times, the Sunday Times, and then I luckily became editor of the Scotsman, Scotland Sunday, and the Observer newspapers in the UK, and then and then the Melbourne Age. But there's one continuum all the way through. I'm just interested in serious quality journalism to better inform readers, and that's kind of where I've always been at. Then, you know, with the arrival of the disruption of the internet and business models imploding, after I left the age, um, and by the way, I started the age with a staff of over 300, and when I left, it was down to just barely 150. What happened was that the real expertise in the newsroom just walked. And what I wanted to do after that was see if I could figure out a new way of providing high quality information. And luckily, I knew the vice chancellor at Melbourne University, Glenn Davis, who asked me to do a little consultancy project for him. And whilst doing that project and meeting some truly smart people at University of Melbourne, I came up with this idea of the conversation and the conversation is just a continuum of the same thing, which is how to provide high quality information, which is, if you like, public service, important, reliable information. And that's kind of what's always interested me. So there's never been really a change in my long career. It's just been, I've just gone through, you know, various different mastheads and, and moved away from print to digital which I have to say is the biggest blessing I've probably had in my life, getting away from the print, the, the print aspect of, of, of journalism. What, what was liberating about it for you? When I was editing The Age, which is the last print publication I ran, we would spend so much time on getting things absolutely right with beautiful looking photographs, you know, everything in a wonderful state. Now I pick up the paper in the morning and, you know, the photographs were smudged or out of sync or blurred the you know the printing was sometimes bad it's difficult to read you've got ink on your your hands 
The second thing that used to happen was I used to get called at sort of two or three in the morning to be told, look, the press has collapsed, you know, or because of, you know, the folder, whatever a folder is, has malfunctioned and we won't be able to get the papers out or they're going to be delayed or the snow on the roads or bad weather, which means we can't get them out. And all I wanted to do was to get the good work that we sort of press the button at 9 p.m. on to readers, first thing to be able to read over their breakfast. And all this printing element, the manufacturing of, of the product just got in the way. And the beauty of the digital thing is, you know, you finish something, you hit the button and it goes directly to your end users or readers. And it looks great. It's sharp. It's fast, you know, and you've taken out a huge amount of costs in the production of the content, which allows you, if possible, in theory anyway, to move funds away from manufacturing and into creating content. It's bloody nice to hear you not idealizing those days, actually. I, I like that. Mm -hmm. Now, this uh, really interesting new startup, it's called 360 Info, isn't it? And, yeah. and I describe it to myself in my head as an academic wire service. Is that accurate? That's that is absolutely spot on. I mean, to shorten it down even more, I just call it a research Reuters equivalent. So shall I explain Please. what I mean by that? So the, the key thing that we're trying to do is bring the, the world of university research to bear on the world's uh, most pressing problems and using the academic research scientific method to then not only just understand the problems, but show us how we might uh, address those problems where possible with practical solutions. So what we're trying to do with 360 Info, which by the way, we operated under the code name, the Global Academy for the last, you know, two, three years. But, you know, we announced this week, Monday, 22nd November, that we call ourselves 360info.org that what we're doing, which is different to my last project, which was the conversation, is that the first thing is that, and I was listening to an interview with someone from the conversation who talked about that they engage, you know, in very topical matters and try to tie everything to the news cycle and use that as the hook to do things. And where it is, there is a news hook, they don't use it. Well, we do the exact opposite. We, it, we had parked the news cycle entirely. What we're doing is focusing on just the world's biggest problems. So we're kind of shadowing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So broadly speaking, there are 17 of them, and they kind of focus on areas of, you know, health, education, well-being, energy, water issues, uh, climate, obviously, and so on and so forth. So that is our agenda, is let's, let's examine the biggest problems the world faces, but let's not look at them just from an Australian perspective. Let's look at them from a global perspective. So that what that means is, you know, if you take an issue like energy, you, you kind of say, well, in Australia, we're lucky. We've got lots of sun and wind. But what happens in other parts of the world, particularly parts of the world, different geography, different climate, different economic development cycles, and so on and so forth, so that we get a global view of things rather than just telling stories on the basis of what does this mean for Australia or New Zealand or whatever? So it, it takes that global overview. Then coming back to the research Reuters, we've got the research. We then have to uh, curate that. So again, I've learned from what I did at the conversation. So we have professional editors and producers who are converting all that knowledge into understandable language. 
And we use the Reuters style guide and the Economist style guide as our, as our guides on that. So we then do the production work on it. And then rather than pushing it all out through a website, a destination website, we've put that to one side because that just means you're trying to attract readers to your site. And instead, we're using the Reuters bit, which is to supply information to everybody's websites around the world. And I say everybody's because we distribute all our contents, all available at no charge under Creative Commons. So it's not a, a financial burden on any newsroom to sign up to us. And we've got so far 750 outlets around the world registered to take our content. And it's available to them at no charge. And they can actually use all the packages we send out with all the content in it, or they can just take you know uh, a couple of elements, they can edit it down, they can use it as they wish. And that's at a time where newsrooms around the world are contracting and having their costs slashed. Going back to the Reuters thing, when I was at the age, we used to have four wire agencies, international wire agencies, plus AAP. And then I was told you can't have four, you can only have two. You choose which two. And then I was told you can't have two, you can only have one. So I don't want to be in a game of charging newsrooms access to this. So what I'm trying to say is at a time of you know media distress, here's a new high-grade reliable source of information which you can use at no cost to add to what you're doing at a time when the world is swamped with poor quality or at times polluted information. It sounds like a great deal for the organizations who who will be using that material. Yeah. The question that comes to mind is, why is it a great deal for Monash University, which is where you're based, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So just to be absolutely clear, the project was brought here to Monash because the Vice-Chancellor, Margaret Gardner, could see the value of it and wanted to support it. But it is an independent service. It's not a Monash service. So it's not branded as Monash. You'll see at the bottom, it, it notes that it's, that it's supported, financially supported and hosted at Monash. But it is very clearly editorially driven. It's not a marketing or or comms site for Monash. We work with universities and researchers around the world, just finding the best that we can to do it all. Mm. But in terms of why she chose to support it, it's for really two reasons. One, Monash is probably Australia's most globally connected university. It's got campuses in Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, in China, in Italy, and and elsewhere it's got partnerships with you know huge number of universities around the world so it's a globally connected university and that's because the vice chancellor sees that's the positioning statement for monash being a globally connected university with campuses around the world but the second reason if i may to explain why she was interested was also because she is of the view that universities now need to work much harder at demonstrating their public value back to society so, you know, sometimes people use the loose term, the social license of a university to operate. Well, what that is, is kind of a compact between, you know, the community and the universities, that universities are a good thing and need to be supported. And, and that is under strain around the world, not just Australia, you know, universities getting public funding. One of the ways to address that is to better demonstrate the value of particularly the research that's being conducted in our case. Uh, the research that's been conducted to help society in terms of, as I said before, understanding its problems and figuring out how to deal with them. The other bit the universities, uh, I think most people know about, is the teaching element, you know, 
going to to get a degree and all that. People kind of understand that, bit, but people quite often don't really understand the research that's, that's going on. And in terms of R&D in, in Australia, I think 60% of all R&D comes out of university, 60-70%. And you mentioned the conversation earlier. Uh, and yeah. Do you see this service as a competitor in any way to the conversation? No, as I said, I think, I think it's entirely complementary. As I say, listening to the people talk at the conversation because it's, you know, since I left, it's, it's kind of gone in a slightly different direction, you know, and, and, you know, they run it now and that's up to them. But, but, you know, they describe themselves as sticking very closely in a very disciplined way to the news cycle. So as I said to you earlier, I, I, we've, we've completely left the conversation to do that job. They do it admirably and, and very happy to leave them to do that. We move into a different area, which is more like, news analysis doing sort of contextual explanatory and at times corrective information about the big issues. I'm fascinated by the content, you know, how that's going to appear, given that it doesn't rest on news hooks. So we have what what I call a, a consultative process, which I call look before you leap. So rather than just leaping into commissioning every morning, which is what, you know, what I brought to the conversation, we have a different approach, which is we have sort of people that we call them reference panelists, but they're uh, consultants who are experts in the field on the big topics we want to cover. And as I said to you, there are climate, water, food, human rights issues, and so on and so forth. So what we do is we say to them, what are the areas you think have been underreported or misreported or you know need to be focused on? So we we do a consultative approach towards you know deciding what our agenda is we also overlay onto that the un's sdgs and we also work with a number of agencies that are involved in sustainable development goal work to ask them what are the areas that they feel need to be addressed so it takes a much much longer process to decide what we're going to do and once we've kind of put that into some shape because we as editors need to come up with a shape for the whole topic, we then begin the commissioning process. So it's kind of a slow news project. It's not jumping in and commissioning or getting something done in two hours or whatever. It takes two weeks largely to do our kind of approach. I can imagine actually that one of your best case scenarios would be you actually setting the news agenda rather than responding to it. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to think we'll do that, but I think it's a it's a pretty tall order to think you can do that at the beginning. I mean, we've only just started this week. And um, and by the way, I should have mentioned to you that although we have uh, loaded our first content on Monday this week, we load it on a Monday and the CMS we've got automatically tells all our subscribers that, you know, content is available, but it is all only made available under embargo to Friday. And the reason for that is how we, we feel that because what we're doing is quite complicated packages that our end users need to have time to be able to to read, ingest, digest, whatever you want to call it, and then and then decide what to use. And then, you know, if they need to rework it to suit their outlet, then they've got a little bit of time. That's interesting. Again, speaking to that long longer lead time. Now, one of the things that really impressed me about the conversation was the in-house development of the CMS and yeah. some of the features of that that were explained to me. What have you What have you done with the CMS for 360 Info? 
Well, just on, on the, the conversation, when I was, you know, sort of leading that project, I was based at Melbourne University and was introduced to an amazing guy called Mike Morris, who was a Ruby on Rails developer, which is kind of an open source development tool and community. He urged, urged us not to, to buy a CMS, but to build one. And you got to remember, this was, we, we did all this work in, in 2010. And back then, we were looking at other CMSs, and none of them quite did what we wanted. And part of the reason is that most CMSs for the media have a, a, a large part of it is a, about handling advertising. You know, so, you know, you book advertising into the system, and then the ads are placed in there and all that kind of stuff. And because we didn't want any advertising, it meant, you know, any of the CMSs, about 60% of the service was redundant, or 60% of the features, I should say, were redundant. So we looked at the cost of it all and Mike said, look, we should build. And then luckily through one of my contacts, friends, who's, who sat on the board at Commonwealth Bank, he really liked the idea and he said, could I speak to the head of their chief technology officer? And so I met up with him. His name is Michael Hart, by the way. He said, this is great. I will pay for the development of the platform. So he invested $850,000 a year for five years in the development of it, which was just wonderful. Now, when it comes to 2020 or 21, 22, I, I just thought that is too much. I just didn't have the funds. I could never see being able to raise the same kind of money because I, I actually raised $10 million for three years for the conversation. And those times have kind of gone. So I just can't raise that kind of money anymore. So I thought, no, we're not going to go down that route again, because not only do you spend a lot of money developing the website, you have to maintain it and develop it. So I began thinking about how to do this. And luckily, one of my friends is a guy called Tony Gillies, who used to run AAP. And Tony said, look, why don't you look at what AAP uses, which is a product built by a company called Source Fabric, who are based in Prague. And they have developed a, a product just for wire agencies, which is called Superdesk. And it's an open source platform run out of Prague, but because AAP, a major client, they've also got a couple of developers who are based in Australia, which has been great for us. It's a fraction of the cost of the conversation CMS, and it's fully developed for exactly what we wanted. It, it, you know, because it's a wire agency, it doesn't obviously handle advertising at all. So it's exactly the right product for us. They did have to customize a little bit for what we want to do, because what we want to do is a bit different to a regular AAP wire agency. But we're absolutely delighted with it. And, you know, it's operational now, but it is what's called a headless CMS. So it's not publicly facing, you know, with lovely pictures and all done to attract, you know, an audience, because that's not what we do. And how many people have you got loading content in here? Well, our entire team is nine at present. Um, so it's a very small team. And of those, six are editors. We've got one person focused on data, one person focused on multimedia, and then we have a general manager as well. It's terribly important that you understand all our content will be uh, very transparent in terms of the way it's being created, the sort of expertise that sits behind it, full disclosure, the funding of any research, full disclosure, if there are any sort of conflicts at all, real or, or, or possible. And so the content is not just free, it's verified, reliable, 
high quality content. Do you have to be a member of the um, consortium to access your CMS? No, there is, there is no consortium as such. So it's, we've got 750 publishers and, and broadcasters, and also we're, we're targeting a sort of broader, wider civic society as well. Anybody, any of these organizations can register with us and get access to our content. In New Zealand, we're already working with Newsroom and the New Zealand Herald, and, you know, we'd be really happy to work with, with others there here in Australia. We started off with the ABC, but we're, we're also working with SBS and, and we hope with all the other publishers. So any, any publisher can, can get access to it. Plus, I should mention AAP, hopefully going to be also a partner in terms of distributing our content to their 400 subscribers. The other thing is that there is a brilliant service based in New Zealand, which is, you may have heard of it, it's called Easy Insights. And Easy Insights is part of our impact reporting suite of services that we've got. So we need to know who is using our content. And Easy Insights, you know, their algorithms will will pick up on who is using our content because that, that's the bit we need to report back both to our stakeholders, but also to our authors, as in who picked up your content and, you know, how many people read it. Yeah, now I understand that the method will be the academic writes it in concert with the with the editor and then it gets an edit gets a polish or gets turned into something that people want to read by the way the yep. author gets the final sign off because it's very important because in the editing process sometimes uh, errors can be brought in not on a willful basis but just there's just an error is introduced and then the author says hang on a second you know this article under my name claims that i think this whereas i never said that at all so to avoid all that, everything goes back after the final edit to the author, and we have to have a tick that the author is happy with it all before it goes live. Can you give me an example, Andrew, of something that's locked and loaded in the system right now? Yeah. So the first package we've got is about energy transition. So that's about how we decarbonize our, our economies. And so it's a package uh, of articles which kind of, you know, frames the problem, which is, you know, how do we move to net zero, what are the challenges we face and how are we going to do it? And then we take examples from around the world. So we've got in the first package, we've got stuff from India, from Indonesia, from just a whole range of different countries, seeing how each country is tra trying to, you know, adapt or, or, or address the problem and move towards, you know, net zero carbon emissions. Mm. Yeah. So. About you, Andrew, it's very rare for a news director to go on or a, or a news editor to go on and become entrepreneurial and, you know, create something new. And I would classify you as someone who has gone on and, and created a couple of new things at least. Tell me about why that is the case. Why are you like you are and why are other, <laughs> news, why are other news directors more like me who'd rather sit back and, uh, you know, observe? Well, I don't think the world is quite as binary as, <laughs> as that now. So look, let, let me just explain that I've actually started five things in my career and worked at a high level on five others. So it's kind of a, a balance between the two. But I, I went to Manchester University in the UK. And if you live in Manchester, you obviously it's only two and a half hours by train to London. And when I went down to London, I came across this wonderful magazine called Time Out. And you, you're probably familiar with Time Out because there's an Australian version as well. 
And I met Tony Elliott, who's the, the guy who ran it. And I said, Tony, why don't you do one in Manchester where I live? And he said, nah, I'm happy just doing London because we're then going to do New York and then Paris and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, can I do one? And he said, well, you can, but you can't use the name Time Out. But he said, what I will do is I will help you. So I just saw a gap in the market in Manchester. And so I founded a magazine, which I ended up calling New Manchester Review. I wanted to just call it Manchester Review, but there's something else was registered as that. So I, I put in the word new at the beginning, but it was largely modeled on Time Out. So what I felt was that there was um, there was a gap here, there was something that might work. And believe it or not, it really took off and did incredibly well. And every time I ran into a problem, I'd ring Tony Elliott up and he would say, do this and do that. But one of the things we need to do was to get advertising. So he said, look, speak to my ad sales director, a lovely guy called Mike Hardwick, and he will help you with telling you, you know, who the agencies to contact and, you know, what what films or record companies are being released that that are advertising in time out. So he helped me enormously. So I, I started that one off and I won't run through all the others, but with the conversation, as I said to you, when I left the age, I saw a problem, which was the age was shedding all its expertise. And and I thought, how do we bring expertise back? into information. So it's based on more than somebody who's just spent, you know, uh, a couple of hours researching on Google. So that's when I went to the the university. I hadn't been back to university since I left my university in Manchester. I went back and I met all these really, you know, fantastic minds and thinkers and thought, these are the smart people I need in my new virtual newsroom. So, so again, I just thought, well, nobody had done that. And, and as everybody says now, it seems like a simple idea, but I had to completely think through the whole idea, how it would work. And as I said to you, you know, I came up with this new, new way of, of sort of form of hybrid content creation, which is journalists working with academics. I then didn't want to have an advertising model because I think advertising is, is a dependency culture that once you get to advertising, you know, you have to put resources behind it. If it falls, then you have to cut back and all that. So I thought, let's avoid advertising. So I came up with the university membership model. And then after I left the conversation, I thought, well, that's that's all going well. And But after that, I thought there is another bit, which which is what I'm doing with 360 Info, which is let's take a different approach, which is to look at a uh, a more features uh, approach towards, you know, the world's big problems. Let's not build a new retail website. and Because retail websites, as in destination websites, you have to put a lot of money into marketing and then you end up being drawn into sort of how many clicks did we get on each story and and then you start writing, you know, stories, commissioning stories and headlines that are going to, in a sense, be clickbaity and all that. I don't yeah. like to describe myself, use the word entrepreneur. I, I don't think of myself that at all. I'm I'm just a journalist. I'm just a journalist who mm. wants to who wants to solve one issue, which is how do we get good quality information out to as many people as possible. So one route is to do the conversation route, which is, you know, to build up a brand, the conversation. And, you know, that's very much what they've done there. I'm not interested in building a brand. We're just we're literally just a supplier of information. You know, we're mm. We, we, we supply stuff, we supply goods to people who can then retail it, mm. you know, for their own use. Mm. I think we can get to many more readers through that approach. So we have 750 outlets as opposed to just having one destination outlet if we just launched a website. Well, 
Thank you so much, Andrew. I've got to wish you well with uh, 360 Info because it's a great undertaking as described and I can't wait to see those first stories. Well, thank you very much. And just so you know that the actual uh, URL is 360info.org. And if anybody is listening to this, if they were able to stay, stay with us during this discussion, which I enjoyed, and I'm sure there, there are lots of other avenues we could have pursued, Hal, but if anybody is interested in seeing our content, just drop us an email at that address and uh, we'll register you. So that's an introduction to Andrew Jaspin and 360 Info, if you didn't know him already. I have logged into the CMS now myself and checked out the content. It's great. One thing I believe Andrew and crew may revisit, that edict against following breaking news. It is so hard to keep coming up with engaging material not connected to current affairs. Another thing I want to mention, Andrew and I agreed at the outset not to go into Andrew's exit from the conversation in 2017, in case you were wondering. Thanks for listening and see you next week.